0: You're listening to New Musings on New Music, where Norm Adams and Barbara Pritchard converse with guests from the world of contemporary art music. We're exploring some of the fascinating ideas found there and demystifying the wild and wonderful music. This is the first part of of our conversation with vancouver composer and sound explorer hildegard westerkamp we will be releasing the second part of our talk with hildegard in a few days please watch for that so here we go um hildegard welcome to the show we're, we're so
1: pleased to have you um we know you as a, a composer an acoustician um musician of wonderful things can can you introduce yourself to our readers our readers our listeners um maybe tell us a bit about who you are and <laughs> how you came to be where you are now i have been thinking about uh lately that am i really really a composer or maybe am i a writer of sound so you know maybe <laughs> you anticipated something <laughs> in that um, <clears throat> yeah, it's not been a very straight line way my life has emerged. I never really knew that I might be a composer, or a writer very, of something in yes. my life. Uh, <laughs> I started with music in the sort of traditional conventional way at home in Germany with my family, you know, having piano lessons, learning to play the recorder, uh, flute lessons later. Growing up in a very conventional classical music atmosphere where really nobody listened past um, Dvorak probably and um, past in terms of towards the present and maybe as far back as um, just before the Renaissance. So that was the sonic classical music atmosphere in my family and it was a post-war atmosphere where people were hungering for uh, music and having ensembles play again, and so I grew up just post-war, and uh, in that time, I heard, as a very young child, I heard classical music all the time. And uh, it was um, obviously something I loved, but I loved too much. I would cry a lot with this classical music. It was just too nice. (laughs) So, uh, you know, there was sort of ambiguous love-hate relationship to classical music emotionally. And um, I didn't really get confronted with contemporary music until I went to concerts and confronted literally because uh, we would go to to concerts and there would be a string quartet and it, it dared to put a contemporary piece into the program. And it was always, uh, of course, terrible, laughable or... Uh, weird or, you know, and um, yeah, I kind of played along with that audience attitude as as a child and young person. It wasn't until I came to Canada when I was studying music at UBC and I was exposed to electronic music, to a fair amount of contemporary music, even though that department was not necessarily very Very uh, progressive at that time. But still, I heard a lot of contemporary music. And, you know, I had heard the names of Stockhausen and Schoenberg and all of those, of course, in Germany. But I'd never really heard much. Stravinsky maybe was most of what I'd heard. And I was completely fascinated by it, partially because it did not affect me emotionally. It was cool for me. And so I loved it. I was drawn to it. But I was also never totally comfortable with it, because I really do love uh, conventional classical music. I love that uh, kind of wash of emotional engagement that can happen with it. Uh, but I am very careful about how much I listen to it, because it just still, you know, takes me over easily. Um, so you know, when I was exposed to uh, Schaefer and I, this is a story I tell all the time because it's just uh, that's just was such an incredible moment and it was really his fault <laughs> that I got into the environmental uh, listening into listening to soundscape um, because of this one lecture that he gave at UBC he was invited as a guest it was such an aha moment that um, it literally just uh, basically that was the beginning of my compositional career which I did not know and then you know eventually I I phoned him and he hired me and I was his researcher on the uh, tuning of the world he wrote at the time I was in paradise I was with colleagues who were listening to everything Mm. (laughs) and I had not known that that's what I'd been doing all my life basically listening to everything hypersensitive Uh, And therefore, easily, easily affected by everything that happened around me. And so, you know, I was a pretty restless, very sensitive, uh, quite kind of scared kid. Uh, School was horrible. And, uh, you know, any kind of music lesson was always a difficult drama. You know, couldn't stand up to teachers. (laughs) I was just scared most of the time. (laughs) So, you know, it was... When I, when I came into that environment of a group of people who just loved listening, I felt I was finally at home. And so literally, we would sit in the studio and listen to recordings that my colleagues had made, and we brought it into the studio, and we would listen to a lot of these recordings and discuss. Discuss what they meant, discuss what they what we actually got there, what does it, how are we going to use it, what are we going to do with it? And as part of the Tuning of the World, Schaefer was writing a chapter a week, and we had these long discussions about his chapters. And those chapters, of course, drew us into topics of anything, noise, silence, uh, community, uh, acoustic communities, natural sounds, industrial sounds, historical things, etc. You know you know what it is like, a sort of an anthology of sound in the world. And it was constant learning, constant discovery. And at the same time, because most of us were musicians or composers, uh, and I wasn't a composer at that point, there was also a lot of discussion of classical music. So, you know, I discovered Mahler at that time. Because Schaefer kept talking about Mahler, and I did not really know much about Mahler, even though I had studied music, but it, I'd never concentrated on that particular composer. And so, you know, instrumentation, the, the subtleties of his instrumentation, the way the listening to classical music happened in that group was like the listening to the environmental sounds, a kind of a discovery every time, and not just an emotional wash that would wipe me out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So it was a big beginning of something new, but I really wasn't sure what, what it all meant. I was so fascinated by the whole world of soundscape research and soundscape exploration yeah, right. that I basically immersed myself in that work. And then eventually I gave a I led a noise workshop at an environmental organization here in Vancouver, We got involved, my then husband Norbert Rupset and I, we got involved with the beginning of Vancouver Cooperative Radio and at that station we learned the kind of low-tech approach to radio. Uh, Also, radio had played a big role in my childhood. I listened to a lot of the German Hörspiel, the radio drama, and uh, realized there was a really strong connection and passion that came from that time. So in that time, in the 70s here in Vancouver, there was just a lot going on. And um, the combination of the World Soundscape Project, the place like the Western Front starting, Vancouver Cooperative Radio, we were just very engaged late 20-year-olds, basically. And um, it was a, a time that I had never imagined coming from this sort of conventional background in Germany. And I was in the you know in the middle of the hippie movement and <laughs> Vancouver was pretty interesting. <laughs> um, and over the years, after, I, I emigrated in 68 and was 22 at that time, and I, the tension sort of fell off me. And I was very happy in Canada and ha- always have been. It's been just the right choice to come to Canada. <laughs> so my coming to, back to composer or writing, uh, I was living with a writer uh, we explored radio together. We explored writing together. And um, in that listening together, um, I began to experiment with sounds. I began to experiment with recording. And in the late 70s, I had gotten one of the first audio grants of the Canada Council uh, for my program called Soundwalking, which was for... Um, vancouver cooperative radio and i learned a lot about recording then barry truax had told me shown me a lot of things in the studio in the sonic research studio and i began to experiment in that studio and i found this love for being in the studio and listening to the sounds and learning uh, to listen deeper and processing them and creating instruments really new instruments and Eventually, it became clear that I was composing. And it was really others that told me that. I didn't really realize that. I was just just sort of doing exercises. And Barry was one of the main people who said, well, that's not an exercise. That's actually a composition. You should send it to this competition. (laughs) And then I found myself being called a composer before I really understood that that's what I I guess I was. and it was my father who said, No, you're not. A, you're in, in, on German radio <laughs> when they played my fantasy for horns, um, um, the, the first version of it. I was called a German Canadian composer, Can- yeah, Canadian German, whatever it was. And he said, You're not a Canadian composer, you're a German composer. And I said, Am I a composer? <laughs> <laughs> So, I, I guess I can only say that it it's always been a discovery, and it continues to be a discovery. And I, uh, even in my composing, using environmental sounds almost exclusively, every piece is a new discovery because when you're listening and when you're recording sounds, you're recording, you're getting engaged with a part of life. You're engaged with a part of a social situation or environmental situation or an issue. So the pieces, the topic is always new and the instruments are always new. The process I go through, I think right from the start has never really changed though. So I, I record, I go into the studio, I bring the, the recordings in. Um, I start listening back to everything. I process the sounds, I don't actually use much I don't really like technology that much Much. I just <laughs> need it <laughs> Too bad um, <laughs> um, I must thank many of my colleagues for saying oh you should use that software or you should use that kind of equipment or that kind of microphone for you Pe- people who understood what I was doing <laughs> would recommend things to to me. And that was always really fantastic because I I am not someone who goes out exploring technology. I I explore in terms of listening, but in terms of technology and that kind of... No, it's always been difficult for me. So I'm always grateful for colleagues who will help me with stuff, even in concerts when, you know, setting up...
0: (laughs) I know.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, so I'm always making sure is there going to be a technician there who can help me when I'm in trouble?
0: Mm. So. How and when did instruments come into play?
1: Ironically, quite early. Yeah. I had uh, composed my second composition, "Fantasy for Horns," which was a, at that point a quadraphonic electroacoustic piece consisting of fog horns, train horns, um, uh, ship horns, and boat horns, etc. All the beautiful horns that we have in Canada, and the World Soundscape Project had them in their library. Uh, so that tape was quite—I I liked very much. It was quite it was quite beautiful. But I thought, oh, maybe it would make sense to compose a part for the French horn, to have a conversation between the the classical French horn, which was a favorite of mine and also of my father's, and maybe I had him in, in mind a bit, wanting because the Fantasy for Horns is actually quite a romantic piece in a way, uh, very lyrical, and uh, so yes, I got to know uh, Jim MacDonald in Toronto was a horn player. And I don't even know how all that happened, but he was here in Vancouver and we started to do a little bit of work together. He was really the one who, who encouraged me and who showed me things and notation and uh, showed me what, what could be done on the instrument. And then I wrote this part, felt quite shy about it and sort of, yeah, thought, well, it was rather simplistic. And then Jim quite loved it. And he premiered it, I think, in the music gallery at that time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so this was in nineteen, could have been nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty. So it was really my third piece. I call it Fantasy for Horns Two. the The tape part itself is a piece in itself. It's a complete piece, and then it became the tape part for Fantasy for Horns Two with the horn part. And um, it's become. Uh, It's quite funny, but it's become a favorite of horn players.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was seeing on your website that there seemed to be lots of performances of it.
1: Yeah, and that only has happened, interestingly enough, in the last, um, I would say, 10 years, that it's really ramped up Hmm. so that some of the young students now in music departments actually really like it. I mean, it's not a revolutionary piece, right? But, of course, it's, um, it's lyrical, it's, it's, uh, people like that softness of it. It's also it's new, because the, new to many people because the soundtrack consists of environmental sounds. And people are really drawn to that these days. Mm-hmm. I've avoided composing for instruments mm-hmm. because I've not felt confident. I, I thought for a while I should maybe study with someone. And then I was always too busy and never did. So then the big piece, um, École Polytechnique, which was performed in Montreal during New Music America, um, suddenly I had a whole ensemble to, I could choose. I had Laurie Friedman do um, the bass clarinet, and she came over, Uh, Sal Ferreras came over for percussion, or I went to his studio. So I worked with the musicians, recorded, um, learned about all that for each piece. It it helped, but Mm -hmm. it still didn't necessarily make me very confident as a composer of instrumental music. And the other thing that um, has been difficult, I've always had the desire to compose for a string quartet because I love string quartets, but I could never figure out why. (laughs) I'm not very good at (laughs) thinking abstract musically. I'm not an abstract music composer, and yet I can be involved for hours in the studio and in parts of my compositions to be abstract. But the abstractness somehow has to relate to something. Uh, if, if for me, it has to be grounded in some sort of explanation <laughs> of why <laughs> I'm doing this.
0: So Ecole Polytechnique was never a performance piece. It was all... Oh, no. It was a, It's a performance. An piece. audio piece. No, it is a performance it,
1: piece. It's a, a performance piece. piece for large choir. That was the other thing. I'd never composed for choir. Um, large choir, uh, uh, bass clarinet, trumpet, um, percussion, and the bells uh, at ucam in right. Montreal. Hmm. Uh, they could be played live. Nice. It was an outdoor performance, and it was uh, crazy. Um, when it was performed. It was large and very, very scary for me because that was not the way I worked. Uh, I felt like I was just jumping into complete unknowns when I was doing that piece. And then it was a performance on November 3 in Montreal, if you can imagine, outdoors.
0: (laughs) 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 What could possibly go wrong?
1: (laughs) Jean Puchy said it either happens or it won't. (laughs) And it happened about Five hours before a snowstorm.
0: Hmm. Nice.
1: Yeah, or a rain, rainstorm, something cold. Has it been, has it been done again? It has been done again by a very adventurous teacher here in school, in a school. It's been done in Guelph at the university. Um, It's been done by Kathy Kennedy in Montreal with her choir. Uh, That's it. Oh no, here too, here in, that's right, here in Vancouver recently it was done with Musica Intima Almost a too small choir, but they handled it beautifully as part of Vancouver New Music, uh, the 40th anniversary. Oh,
0: okay. yeah, yeah. You and I first met at the Acadia New Music Festival in 20-whatever, and I had the pleasure of playing uh, Liebeslied lead Love Song, in which you managed to avoid confronting the whole instrumental part by having the cellist improvise the whole thing. <laughs> I, now I know you're avoiding avoiding it I didn't know that until this very moment
1: <laughs> well, Anne born who commissioned the piece um, actually or open ears commissioned it with mm-hmm. Anne Bourne. she she helped me because she wanted to improvise
0: mm-hmm. I told Barbara the story just before you joined us Hildegard but after I played it in in Wolfville I I realized that I'd never had more fun performing on the cello in my entire really? life I felt I actually felt guilt And there was something wrong, because I had so much (laughs) fun playing that. (laughs) It was very conflicting. It was very conflicted.
1: Oh, that is so. You know that's. (laughs) I am very happy you're telling me that.
0: It's uh, yeah. It was like it was just. Thank you. Everything kind of aligned, and I don't know what it sounded like. It probably sounded terrible because actually my teacher, when I when I was coming up, my, my my teacher was very suspicious when you had too good a time playing your instrument, you know, like oh yeah, she she that that student wow. is really having a good time, and she doesn't sound very good at all. um so I, I kind of I sort of thought, yeah, if you're having a good time, you obviously aren't trying hard enough or something, but anyway, that was my uh, experience oh with that that Liebensley. is a very
1: interesting story because um I've always felt very awkward about this piece. I, mm. You know, from my perspective, I was just being lazy. I wasn't actually looking at my, ch- challenging myself. I should mm. be, I should be learning to compose for instruments. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, but you did, you were the first one after Anne who played yeah, it. So. And I remember our discussions um, really, really helped mm. uh, to consolidate a little bit more what maybe I was doing there. Mm-hmm. Also, the soundtrack is weird to me. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, it kind of is a strange improvisation with, mm-hmm. with um, environmental sounds and around this poem by mm-hmm. Rainer Maria Rilke, mm-hmm. um, a love poem. And so these conversations grounded it for me a little bit more and your response to it and your way of working with the, with the soundtrack brought meaning to it Mm, it it i think what resonated for me was that i am an improviser in the studio Mm -hmm.
0: uh,
1: because i do the same thing i listen and i respond and then i I create a piece but it's slow motion it's not live right it goes on over months Uh, and i've always been terrified of of improvisation (laughs) (laughs) have challenged myself off and on but same thing you know too formal that classical upbringing i couldn't do it so working with you was um bringing that sense of improvisation that is so beautiful uh together in some way Mm. and um since then other people have played it and i've always been astonished about how the piece changes Mm. oh yeah it becomes a different piece with every player and and your sincerity uh which is funny that you should be saying that you were just having too much fun what i sense is your sincerity Mm. and engagement with the sonic world that you were in uh it just felt so good
0: that's very kind so we
1: both felt good (laughs) Yay! i felt guilty you felt good <laughs> oh I you never this is amazing. You've never said that. You felt guilty. Oh my god.
0: <laughs> That's my uh my the, my mother <laughs> or someone speaking. Well, yeah.
1: <laughs> I understand.
0: So, I'm I'm curious about a couple of things. I'm curious about you're a sound ecologist. What is what does that mean?
1: Yeah. I suppose what what one could say is that um acoustic ecology is ecology with the emphasis on the acoustic world on the soundscape mm-hmm. the the kind of concern about the the balance and well-being of our environment with the emphasis on the concern being for the soundscape the quality of the soundscape that's a simple way of saying it it uh, gets very complicated trying to define acoustic ecology and there's been a Because it's a relatively new concept, it's been um, bandied around a lot from many different professions. And there's discussions about whether it should be sound ecology, soundscape ecology, acoustic ecology. Uh, It doesn't really matter. It's generally speaking, um, the concern about the quality of our acoustic environment. And then, of course, extending into the study of it, extending into What we've always hoped for when we were in the World Soundscape Project, that would be extending into scientific study, uh, that it would be extending into cultural and social study, um, into all the areas of life where sound occurs, to understand what are we doing to our sound environment in the way we are living as societies, as communities, as individuals. It's a huge task. And... um, you know, I think it's maybe a bit pretentious to call myself a sound ecologist. Um, at the time when I first used the term, was in a in a performance piece when I was trying to perform a little bit myself, called "Cool Drool," which is which is about.
0: Um, I noticed that title, and I thought it was one of the great musical titles of all time.
1: <laughs> it's about background music, <laughs> 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 and it's a critique of the music corporation and the the insertion of music into our lives, hmm. of, of unwanted, or of uh, um, music not initiated by us into the environment, mm-hmm. right? And um, um, at that time to call myself a sound ecologist as part of this performance piece um, just was kind of comical and ironic. And um, because I wanted to set up the fact that I was going to be critical and ironic and sarcastic about the whole thing, I was just writing a master's thesis, which was on the academic level, driving me crazy. So I had to do this comedy piece in order to finish my master's thesis.
0: <laughs> and then it turned into a big thing. And now Wikipedia calls you a sound ecologist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So sound ecology, it, how does your art practice fit into sound ecology? Or is it a totally separate pursuit?
1: Not at all. It, it's completely connected.
0: Hmm.
1: It's uh, the, the listening that I was speaking about earlier, to listen to the environment, to, to go on sound walks and to uh, develop a practice of listening in my lifetime um, is completely connected to my compositional process in a way. Um, my early pieces were very clearly connected to soundscape issues. My very first piece, Whisper Study, was about silence. Thinking about silence. Thinking about what does it mean in our lives? Um, in what what cultures? It doesn't. It doesn't um, grapple with those things uh, concretely. It's just the backdrop to that piece. When I was um, I was working with whispered sounds. When there is no sound, hearing is most alert. Was the sentence that I used for that piece, and I whispered it. The issue of when there is no sound, hearing is most alert, was what interested me. And so the sounds that I used in that piece then became the uh, expression of grappling with the philosophical stance in that sentence. Uh, So that was my very first piece. And then Fantasy for Horns was about, listen to these incredible horns that someone designed that we are hearing in our environments out here. Train horns that I had not heard of that beauty in Germany.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, there we have church belts, right? That's that's the beautiful musical quality and environmental in the environment there. But my enthusiasm for these beautiful horns, um, that musicality that they bring into a soundscape, that's what made Fantasy for Horns. And then a walk through the city was one of the next pieces um, that was about the downtown east side, which was absolutely not lyrical whatsoever and that was about the hardships of addiction hardships of living in an environment where all you hear is sirens and traffic noise and mm. maybe some seagulls um, that piece was interesting because it was a commission by two new hours and my my thought behind this it's based on a poem by norbert Rupsart called A Walk Through the City, and it's about the downtown east side, and Co-op Radio was in the downtown east side, and we were always walking through that environment. So I thought, oh, two new hours. Well, okay, I'm going to talk about the downtown east side on two new hours. (laughs) That was my social, political activist part that wanted to bring that into the new music scene. And, you know, I wasn't sure whether they would even want to play it or accept it. But they did, you know, it was played and it was accepted. So, the activist part of me, the one that wanted to fight noise, the one that wanted to make the world more qualitatively, the the soundscape qualitatively more bearable and maybe even beautiful and more quiet, um, that part was very, very strong in the late 70s and 80s. And so it came into a piece like a walk through the city. And later on, there was like something like Cricket voice, um, which was a record based on a recording of the cricket in, the, in a desert in Mexico. And the, feel, the sense behind that was, here's this tiny animal and it has this, when you process it, it has this absolutely gorgeous heartbeat like sound. Why not amplify the smallest creatures in this world? Because if we don't understand them, if we if we don't know that they're there, and if we don't know their significance, then we also don't know the role they play in the ecological balance of our natural world. That was the thought behind that. So none of this is sort of overt, but that was always the sort of what got me going on doing these pieces. Then you know I went to India, and India was completely fascinating and shook me up Um, so I wanted to deal with meeting that culture and a few pieces came out of that then uh, my piece Für dich for you and then Liebeslied they're both based on the same poem the sense behind that was that we need to learn something about love in this world in order to understand on a deeper level how we can uh, how we and the earth can survive, well, the earth will survive, but how our life on this planet can survive. And um, even though the Röke poems does not talk about that at all, it's much more about just like love in the personal relationship kind of way, the backdrop to that was uh, we need to know mo- more about love beyond the relationship part of love. We need to know about our inner love, our uh connectedness to to life as it is.
0: Hmm.
1: And so on. So, you know, and, and then of course then I get completely concrete in my last piece, Rachel Iwasa basically dragged me to do a compose for piano. <laughs> it, to, it took it took us about seven years to get this done or ten years. <laughs> there were some life changes in in my life, I lost my partner in 2014, and so we had to interrupt and I just needed time. And um, she came back and said, there is that Canada Council Commission still, would you want to continue? And that piece is very, very concrete. It's very much about uh, piano lessons, about the our love to the piano and the agonies we've gone through as music students mm. and you know we had long conversations long interviews um with each other about this process and so you know that there's a narrative that rachel performs live with the piano playing and it, it's all about it's called clavier clang piano sound and it's about about the piano and our relationship to it um again mostly environmental sounds and piano sounds on the soundtrack uh, and it's a story of the little girl uh, that goes through this process of of um, loving and agonizing over the piano and sort of finding a freedom uh, eventually.
0: Did you write notes? Did you write notes yes. for the pianist? Oh.
1: I actually did. <laughs> Some of them are uh, like Beethoven. There's the... I said to Rachel, what was the hardest piece that you ever had to practice? And then she gave me the Beethoven, oh, what was it? I can't remember it. A very hard passage of a Beethoven sonata. No. And that part, she has to practice. She actually has to practice <laughs> oh, it during in that the, During
0: the show, good. Yes. <laughs> oh, it sounds like my
1: kind of piece. Oh. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. <laughs> Thank you, yes, please, please. Yes, so that was my last piece and um, you know, I quite frankly don't know where the composer is right now. Hmm. She's somewhere else. She's listening a lot. And I'm not upset about it.
0: Hmm. Well, that's a good place to be. (laughs) You've been listening to New Musings on New Music, demystifying contemporary music produced by Suddenly Listen Music. Check our podcast website for links to music and information that will eliminate and illustrate our discussions. Don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and podcast news. Suddenly Listen acknowledges the support of Arts Nova Scotia in the presentation and production of this podcast. Thanks for listening.